This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode, we'll be speaking with noted chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We'll also be speaking to the producers of those ingredients about what makes them so great and why chefs use them in their kitchens. On this episode of Ingredient Insiders, we will be talking about prosciutto. You are known as the prosciutto queen. Yes, my favorite food of all time. I think most people know what prosciutto is, Andrea, right? I mean, but let's yeah. let's do a little review. I always love Galoni prosciutto and what they say about prosciutto. Very simply, it's pork, salt, and thyme. You ever heard that before? Yeah, I think what I love the most about prosciutto is the mouthfeel. When you put a piece of prosciutto in your mouth, that fat, it just, it melts in your mouth. It's nutty, it's luscious. I love melting it like on a piece of bread. For me, it's just like pure joy and pleasure. That's can what prosciutto. Say, can you say prosciutto again? No. Because you yes. say it with like the <laughs> the Jersey The Jersey Philly accent. accent. The Philly, yeah. What do you call it? Prosciutto. Prosciutto. I don't say prosciutto. Prosciutto? There's an O at the end. Okay. But I really love it. I just think it's everything How did you me. get the nickname prosciutto queen? Every single time I go to a party... Yeah. That's what I bring. You know, we carry the, the pre-sliced prosciutto at Chef's Warehouse. Yes. It's the La Quercia brand. That's which, American. Which okay. is an American prosciutto. Yep. And that's literally what I bring. And it's always the biggest hit. So they coined me with the name Prosciutto Queen. All right. I respect that. I'm old <laughs> enough to remember when prosciutto <laughs> got approved to come into the United States. And it's shocking because it's not that long. It was the 1980s. And again, this is another one of these products that we talk about where it's so ubiquitous now. It's so widely available. Like if you grew up in the United States pre-late 1980s, it, this didn't exist. You were eating boiled ham, you know, and boar's head if you were lucky. Well, it's interesting because now still, so, you know, you can import prosciutto and speck and mortadella. Um, well, that's a cooked one. But like you can you can import a lot of these like whole muscle, I would say, cured meats. But things like salami, you cannot import salamis from Italy. Yeah. There's a couple, I think, that you can import, but it's very limited. Yeah. It's the, the USDA is so strict about bringing in any kind of meat products into the United States, which is troubling and to a certain extent. I mean, I understand they're looking after the, the well-being of Americans, but when you have such a history, literally hundreds and hundreds of years of production of cured meats in Italy, in Spain, then the U.S. introduces, you know, their strict guidelines. It's a little difficult sometimes. There's like lost opportunities almost. Maybe there's a lack of understanding as to, you know, it is safe. Once an item is cured, it's considered a stable food. The risks of getting sick are really, really small. Have you been to a prosciutto factory like production? I have actually never been... And my times to Italy, that has never been one of the stops that we've made. Okay. But I've seen a, like a ton of pictures. I'm planning to go actually again in June and that's on my list. Because I was going to ask you if you owned a horse bone. Do you I, know about the horse bone? Tell me about the horse bone. When you walk through these giant aging rooms of prosciutto where the, the legs of ham are hanging, mm -hmm. sometimes for up to three years, while they're aging and because this is an uncooked product, they need a way to test to make sure that the meat is curing properly. The way that they do this, and it's an age-old technique, is they take a horse bone, and there's a, someone whose job this is on a daily basis to walk around these giant warehouses that have thousands of legs, and they insert the horse bone into the meat, and then they pull it out, and they smell it. And the reason they use a horse bone is it's very porous. Mm -hmm. So what happens when you poke it in there, it actually a lot of the aroma and the smell adheres into the 
the bone. If it smells pleasant and kind of porky, the prosciutto is aging well. And on the very rare occasions that something is not going well in it and they put it in and they pull it out and it smells off, that piece of prosciutto is removed, thrown in the garbage because it didn't cure properly. But one of the funny things about when you go to visit a prosciutto ficio or prosciutto production facility is oftentimes they will present you with your own very own horse bone in a little leather sheath as a gift. Oh, I need to go. Ah, that's I why I asked if you bone. had one. I don't have one. Yeah. What I found interesting when we, in talking with a lot of prosciutto makers and salami makers, you know, you talk about John, you know, the ingredients for prosciutto is pork, salt, and thyme. What I always hear is that air of prosciutto de Parma is what kind of makes the product what it is. Yeah. And a lot of domestic salami makers, prosciutto makers, they're trying to replicate that. So I had a conversation, this was 10 years ago, with Cristiano Cremonelli, the founder of Cremonelli Salami. And he said that when he was moving from Italy to the U.S., the only thing he cared about was finding a place that mimicked the air quality of Parma. That's very interesting. When you go to visit these prosciutto production buildings in Italy, where again, where the prosciutto are hanging and aging, and one of the features of these buildings is not a modern air conditioning system. Mm -hmm. They are giant levered windows. And they happen to be in a very heavily forested area in the hills outside of Parma, which has very pure air because yeah. it comes in from the uh, the sea. What they do at certain times of the day is they open the levers of these windows so that the sea breezes and the mountain breezes can blow into the room. The drying process and the, the aging process of the prosciutto is happening with that natural air at a certain time of day. I think when it cools down and you know gets to a certain temperature, or if it gets too warm, they close those levers to keep that ambient atmosphere in the room. And yeah, that makes perfect sense. I would think that Utah's got very pure, clean mountain air that would be great for aging their cured meats. Exactly. I thought it was so interesting that he said I traveled all around the U.S. to find the place that had the air that was most like Parma, and he picked Utah. We'll be talking with Tess McNamara, who's the head of Salumi and Formaggi at Italy USA. The Italians will tell you uh, it all really boils down to four ingredients, which is also crazy. And I think cheese is, is this way as well. What a great job she has. She's the person who is in charge of all of their decision-making for cheeses and cured meats from Italy at Italy USA. So lucky to have her job. I'm sure you've been in that section of mm-hmm. Italy, either in New York City or uh, you know Los Angeles or, or Dallas. They do such a great job. And so she's really the person who's behind those efforts. We'll also be speaking with Jason Stem, who is the marketing manager for the Consorcio of Prosciutto de Parma. So there are about 140 producers that are a part of the Consorcio. Wow. And about 25 that are authorized to export to the United States. Another dream job for someone like yourself. I would love his job. Travel around and talk prosciutto. More like eat prosciutto all day. Yeah, sounds good. (laughs) This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media. In the room today is the prosciutto queen, Andrea Parkins. In the house. And to my right is Tess McNamara, a.k.a. the queen of mortadella. I actually just made that up. (laughs) But Tess has one of the great jobs in the food industry, She is the director of 
salumi and formaggi for Italy. Hi, everyone. Am I saying that correct? Yeah, you are. It still makes me giggle sometimes, but technically that's my job. Are you okay with being called the queen of mortadella? Oh, absolutely. Because Andrea mm. decided that her uh, tag in life is the prosciutto queen. My um, favorite food. I'm not joking when I say that Tess has one of the best jobs in the world. I'm jealous if, of Tess's If Tess you love job. cheese and you love salumi or cured meats, it's harder to have a more prestigious or wonderful position. Let's talk about salumi and cured meats from Italy. For me, it's my favorite food. Like hands down, number one, I adore it um, in a way that I, I crave it. I love the way that the fat melts um, when you're eating it, the sweetness that you get. I love the experience. Well, how does prosciutto make you feel? Oh, kind of like that. I'm honestly, I have this aha moment for me. I have a dear childhood friend, Rory, and his aunt and uncle were living in Switzerland. And so when I was 16, I traveled internationally with him. We basically were, were carted around and, you know, taken into the Alps for hikes. And one day we sat down to this lunch that was literally like, here, rip this baguette, eat these beautifully freshly sliced pieces of prosciutto, have these cheeses that have these amazing mottled rinds that I'd never seen. It just stood out to me. Buying cheese cut to order or getting cured meats sliced to order was not a part of my childhood. So really, I think the word prosciutto to me probably didn't come into my vocabulary, at least not in a way that is memorable to me until this trip. And I just sat there and I asked so many questions and I was also sort of silent at the same time, like taking it in, thinking like, wow, how can something melt in your mouth like this? How, mm -hmm. this is magic. Give me more. Can we have it tomorrow? Can we have it for dinner? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was incredible. I think my introduction to prosciutto was at, at you know, these Italian red sauce restaurants of New York of the 1980s, she would always get these beautiful prosciutto e melone, slices of cantaloupe with the prosciutto draped over it, you know, and I'm a kid who grew up on, you know, maybe boar's head ham or to taste the silkiness of that meat cut so thin and melt in your mouth and then to have the cantaloupe. I mean, those are like great childhood memories for me. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, prosciutto wasn't allowed into the United States until the 1986 or sometime in the late 80s. I mean, this is a re really good point. I mean, if you go through what the current consumer probably knows about prosciutto itself, prosciutto di Parma, and rightfully so, it was really the first prosciutto we had access to. It's the DOP um, that have the most producers under the umbrella of. So more of it is made than some of the other prosciutti crudi. Then there were things like speck and mortadella. And now as much as we have pancetta and guanciale and some Italian salami at Italy, like these were not things that were present in the 80s and 90s. Like these are things of these last 10 years, really, these last few years. So what we have in the U.S., especially coming from Europe, it's still very challenge-ridden, and the FDA, you know, sometimes rightfully, but there are a lot of really old regulations that don't really have as much clout as they still do, and they need updating. And basically, it comes down to food safety, which, of course, I'm a proponent of, but a lot of salumi in particular, so this is cured meats, this is charcuterie coming from Europe, has to go through a process called high-pressure pasteurization. And you can imagine these small producers in various regions in Italy, Nono comes down. He's like, I don't really need to fill out that paperwork. I'm going to stick to my production. I'm going to do exactly what my father and my grandfather did. And I don't need to export my products to the U.S. market. Also, it's very costly. So you have to invest in different equipment and even prosciutto, taking that as an example, there has to be an allocation of pork where someone literally points to it and says, these pigs and this pork, this is going to be for the U.S. market. 
versus all of this is going to stay here in Europe. And it can't be mixed. It has to be produced separately. It has to be aged and cured separately. So I think with this in mind, it's not always as readily known when you're looking at a shelf. Just using Italy as an example, we support producers of salumi that we're proud of on the basis of the quality of the product and the tradition. And this includes both domestic producers and Italian producers. And there aren't that many Italian producers of salumi because I know- That are permitted in the U.S. Right. Because I know prosciutto, speck, especially the the cooked items, they're allowed. But salumi itself is not. People do not realize how many different types of cured meats or cheeses for that matter- that are being produced in Italy. And I always remark when I'm in Italy that you can go into almost any small village in almost any region and there will be a cheese shop or salumeria that will have a more comprehensive selection of cheeses and cured meats than the greatest shops. No disrespect to Italy. I love Italy. None take. But the selection that is available in Italy and the number of different types of hams or the number of different types of salami, it's mind-boggling. I mean, it's and the to, motherland a and, little bit. I mean, that's like course. you expect that. If but, I'm going to Italy and I'm in a little town, like I'm like seeking out that little shop. My point, and to Tessa's point, I think there's like 20 prosciuttos that are permitted right now. I think that there's a, a you know very few salumi. You're getting a very homogenized, and to Tessa's point, you know, a very small piece of what's actually being produced. One of the takeaways from this is if you're listening to the show, go to Italy to eat salumi and go to Italy to eat cheese when you're there, eat it every day. When you're not there, go to Italy and, and eat it because they've got the finest selection in North America. People often come back from these trips to Europe, whether it could be to France or it could be to Spain. They're just waxing about the food and do things taste better? And I have this conversation with a lot of people like, do things taste better in Italy? Yes. Do things taste oh, better in I France? Mean- <laughs> Do things taste better in Spain? And I've had some great chefs in the U.S. tell me, oh, no, it's not that they have the same products we have. And, you know, it's really just a case of you're there and it's a very romantic feel. I'm like, no, no, no. There is a distinct difference. Take it down to even basic produce. So many things come from small farms that are really doing things the right way. Not Again, not to take away. There's great American products now. I'm thinking about what you said, John, because possibly 20-ish producers of prosciutto that are importing to the U.S. Well, I would say probably 20-ish vintages. Okay. Producers, possibly. Out yes. of how many I mean, exist in Italy has, you know, five DOP producers that we're, we're very proud to work with. Most recently in, in Toronto, uh, it's also a market I managed for us, and we opened a store there in 2019. Interestingly enough, the example of Toronto and what's available there versus the U.S., I think, really kind of tells the story. In Toronto, I have access to Italian Berzaola, Italian Guanciale, and Italian Pancetta. And because of those relationships, in particular Guanciale and Pancetta, we have been able to launch guanciale and pancetta here in the U.S. via the help of our amazing importers, via a lot of time and energy. I mean, we started talking about guanciale from Salumificio San Carlo in 2019 when I when I came on board at Italy. It was what, tell the us, inkling. Some folks happening. listening don't know what exactly what guanciale is. What is guanciale? So guanciale is essentially the pig cheek, the pig jowl. It is delicious when sliced thinly and eaten on its own, which Many Americans, I think, are still 
getting used to that notion, but I highly recommend that. More often than not, uh, where people might know it is that it's in amazing Italian dishes. Amatriciana mm-hmm. from Rome, alla grigia. It's sometimes lumped in with pancetta, but it is obviously a little bit different coming from the cheek versus the belly, not smoky like a lot of our American bellies are being bacon. So it's a cured meat that's used in a lot of these classic Roman pasta sauces as kind of the fat that that gets the dish going. Absolutely. And or eaten. Yeah. And I would say the one highlight I think that I can touch on for the pandemic was all of this home cooking. I have never met so many customers who were so eager to render fat. Where's your pancetta? Where's your guanciale? (laughs) And various different pronunciations of it. But, you know, there's no shame. We're here to educate You don't know how to say guanciale yet. We'll get you there. But the fact that you want it and you want it in abundance, I'm really happy to hear that. (laughs) We all needed that, I think, (laughs) during the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, everybody needed a little extra. A little pork fat. We still need it, but we really needed it then. Yeah. So it's exciting and we'll keep pushing that envelope. And meanwhile, we're really proud of of also what's going on stateside. Things come to mind like La Salomina. It's a husband and wife butcher team in Hurleyville. He's originally from Tuscany. They learned in Tuscany together. They're doing incredible things uh, together, including their guanciale. They give a lot of their products Tuscan names. Cesare Casella, uh, we're a big supporter of his at Italy. He truly is also from Tuscany and makes incredible prosciutto and salami. And there's a lot going on that we've been able to latch on to. And then we have the five DOPs, but there are so many prosciutti that we still don't have access to here in the U.S., Actually, there's prosciutto di Cugno, who it's been made for generations from Piemonte, the, the region where I, I kind of fell in love with cheese and the role of the cheesemonger. But it only became a DOP, I believe, in 2009. So the consortium, which is like, if anybody ever asked me to be on a board, I would love to be on the board of a consortium. I would never recuse myself. <laughs> you want the prosciutto di Cugno uh you want to be on their board? Yeah, can I be an oh, honorary got, yeah, member? I think we got we'll to try and hook to, it up. talk to like Giorgio yeah. Crevero or somebody, you know, or your friends uh, in Piemonte. I'm sure yeah. they, they got some connections there. I want to talk specifically about the different types of prosciutto because you mentioned the five DOPs. So what are the five? And for people who don't know, a DOP is a protected origin from a certain region in Italy. So prosciutto di Parma, basically translates into this is a cured ham from the region of Parma in Emilia-Romagna. And then there is prosciutto di San Daniele, which is, again, a cured ham from the region of San Daniele, Lombardia. I don't even know what the exact region is there. So Friuli, Venezia, Giulia. But specifically like in and around the town of San Daniele or the province of Udine. San Daniele is one of my favorites. The Italians will tell you uh, it all really boils down to four ingredients, which is also crazy. And I think cheese is, is this way as well. But it's Italian pork, specifically the hind legs. All of the pigs for these productions have to be raised in Italy. And specifically the DOP, that's what it's designating and protecting. It's saying and stipulating that the pigs must be raised, usually within certain provinces. Those provinces can be a little bit further from the actual production zone, but nonetheless, they're still within northern and central Italy, largely. Then it's salt, usually sea salt from Sicily. Air, which literally is an attribute uh, when the curing process is underway, the windows of the curing rooms and facilities are, are open. So you're getting all of those mountainous breezes or those Adriatic winds, and that's adding something for sure. And then time. 
You have to be patient. And it's very sensory driven in terms of the experts that are responsible for telling you what a great leg of prosciutto is. They literally use a horse bone at a certain stage of the curing process and they'll insert, they'll pull it out quickly and they will sniff it. So these are expert sniff testers, I suppose. I, I gave Andrea <laughs> a horse bone for her Hanukkah gift. Yeah, it's displayed in my kitchen now. Thank you, John. And she was very touched by that, which I thought was lovely. I thought she was going to get It's really sharp and I had it in my bag and I was like, if I'm on the subway, I'm I'm going to get like arrested for having like a weapon. <laughs> so I thought it was really eloquent how you described those four ingredients. But what about the nuances prosciutto. of all of them? What is the difference between prosciutto di Parma and prosciutto San Daniele? What is, besides the region, why should I choose prosciutto di Parma over another one? Well, first of all, I mean, you can have a prosciutto of, you know, a day of the week. Monday can be San Daniele, Tuesday can be di Parma. It's really okay. <laughs> I'm Great with idea. You. I'm with you. <laughs> Uh, but Prosciutto it really is club. that taste of place, <laughs> I would say, for sure. Where something is is made is going to inherently have those terroir-driven traits. I suppose you have to be a believer in that, but if you do a side-by-side tasting, I think you are going to see that all of these legs and beautifully thinly sliced slices from these legs are going to taste different. I would say that another attribute of it is the what the Italians call the sognatura, which is essentially sometimes a recipe that's not even really disclosed in great detail. The pork fat, the lardo that's mixed with varying herbs and spices, and these differ by region and by production. And so some are very straightforward. Some people add juniper, they add thyme, they add peppercorns. In Valdeosta, it's a little more spicy, so there's a lot more pepper. So what you're describing is when they make prosciutto, they take that raw leg of ham before while they're curing it. So they smear that pork fat onto oh, the prosciutto, yeah. onto the meat. <laughs> Sometimes they do put a little bit of herbs or spices in there. That could be a little secret. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And that infuses and into like the meat. Yes, and it's around usually the part of the the muscle that's exposed. And so because curing is going to take place in this open air, like very humidity driven environment, nonetheless, it's still, you know, fermentation and curing. So you don't want the product to oxidize. And so at this stage, the legs have been butchered. They've been salted. They sometimes go through a machine that kind of tenderizes the fibers, sometimes more than once also. That's another attribute. And this kind of tenderizes the muscle fiber, gets it ready, allows that salt to absorb. And then there's usually at least two layerings of salt. That usually sits in a cold place for about a week. And then it comes out, might go through this tenderizer, might get more salt. But then essentially they're hung and they're monitored. And so this sunyatura becomes very important because it's part of the preservation of the leg. Arguably, it's imparting flavor as well, but its first purpose is to make sure that the cure can continue and take place and there's not going to be any spoilage or any oxidation to these legs. And so that's really special. I mean, some people might tell you there's certainly generic list of what goes into them online, but from what I've experienced, uh, the only production I've truly seen visibly was prosciutto di Parma. And we got to see the, you know, the whole pig broken down. It really is incredible how they use the whole animal in and of itself. That sognatura is going to be different than the sognatura for San Daniele. And then I would say the rest is truly that wind. You know, San Daniele is so delicate and maybe the salt levels too. I really hate actually talking about salt in prosciutto. I feel like it's an easy out. All prosciutto has salt. And if the salt is too present, 
then maybe it's too cold or maybe it's actually too long of an age profile because age isn't always everything. The cure has to happen, you know, in a balanced way for that salt not to become really omnipresent. That probably means the leg has lost too much moisture. We try to train our mongers to not focus on salt, especially because a lot of the modern consumer base doesn't want too much salt in their diet. So when you lead with that, you almost ostracize people to try and prosciutto, I think. Should we be choosing different prosciutti for different uses? Yeah, that's a great question too. So I would say for sure, if you're cooking with prosciutto, ask your your local shop if they'll sell you the end. So the whole leg of prosciutto is delicious, including the end. From an aesthetic standpoint, as a consumer, if you're having a plate of prosciutto, you want those slices to be fairly robust. You want them to be full size. But if you look at a leg, obviously it's not angled that way. The the last part of it is is kind of like a little two-pound end. And those are really great for brodos, for starting dishes, for rendering and kind of using in a similar way to pancetta or guanciale. And I wouldn't go for a huge age profile. You don't need to cook with 36-month San Daniele. Save that for your plate. Save that for your cheese and charcuterie board. Yes, I, I think absolutely. Um, when you are cooking with something, I'd say the same thing for, you know, certain Parmigianos. There's certain Parmigiano Reggiano that I would finish a dish with. And there's probably a younger, still complex enough profile that I would cook with more in terms of grading a larger sum and putting it into a dish. The prosciutto queen this, is stuff. I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> when I cook with it, I'm typically buying something that's younger. And then when you're slicing it, you're, it has to be at least 24 months. You want that aged, beautiful oh, yeah. product. Why does prosciutto have to be sliced so thin? If not, it'll be tough. It's the leg. So these pigs, and that's another attribute. So a lot of these pigs are, are living a pretty spa-like life, uh, whether they're in Italy or whether they're in Spain on the American Peninsula. They're, they're raised pretty humanely. I know that's maybe an oxymoron because we are talking about their demise and then their delicious curing. But what goes into their life and their diet really matters. So we didn't talk about prosciutto di Parma and the fact that the pigs are largely fed the whey that's left over from the production of Parmigiano Reggiano. And even though other pigs in various regions where there's DOPs are also fed whey, that whey is very different. So that that's a huge flavor, so that I think. Fla that adds on, flavor that imparts to that. Flavor into I the think meat. that gives it a pretty unique signature. There, I would break it down. The way we break it down at Italy, I think, is probably hopefully consumer friendly. But there's DOPs you know, and these are protected origins of prosciutto that you know. So these are things like prosciutto di Parma, prosciutto San Daniele, and then probably prosciutto Toscano in that order. And then there are smaller productions of prosciutto, crudo, that were not allowed access to the U.S. market until very recently that are a lot less known and are much smaller in their size, so they have fewer producers, so they don't produce as many legs per year. And these are productions like prosciutto carpeña, prosciutto di morena, prosciutto veneto, eugenio, uh, eugenio better go eugenio. Uh, Val de Osta has one that's like quasi-French sounding, hambon, the bosas. Then there's prosciutto di cuño, and these are just DOPs. We haven't even talked about IGP prosciutti. So prosciutto di norcia from Umbria is an IGP, also newly developed as a consortium, but has been made, I mean, all of these have been made for centuries. I was texting somebody this morning, actually, your friend Jared Foreman mm -hmm. about Umbria and in particular you mentioned Norcia, which is this incredible village or small town in Umbria, in the heart of Umbria, that's very famous for two things. One is black truffles, winter truffles, and the other is for their amazing butchers. As a result of that, a lot of cured meats. I didn't realize they have a prosciutto di Norcia. Via help from our importer in Toronto, we were just able to launch it there. 
Uh, and I just got to taste it on a recent visit across the border. What does it taste uh, like? It's a lot more nutty. I would liken it, uh, and, and a little bit peppery. I would liken it, it's close enough to a jamón serrano or prosciutto di modena. It's a little bit longer age, so it it's still delicate, but it definitely has a little bit more of a dryness to it. It just stands out, you know, like the others. Um, still has that amazing fat cap that just kind of melts in your mouth. Um, that's always kind of another point of contention. A delicate dance, I guess, with the with the consumers when someone comes up and they're like, "Can you slice that for me? Just cut off all the fat." I'm like, oh no. Mm. But we can recommend, you know, maybe a smaller fat cap prosciutto for you. But the fat is where the flavor is. Come on. What's your feeling about culatello? Culatello is kind of like the creme de la creme of prosciutto making it where you're taking like literally what does culatello mean in italian it's the more the loin isn't it like in the stomach um, lining though well they yes. cure it the way it's they, cured and aged is very different right. yeah yes. i was also spoiled in this realm and i got to visit which i highly recommend antica um Palavacina. uh they have literally a culatello museum but they're also a restaurant yeah, you have to go there too. They take you into the cellar. First of all, the smell is like the greatest cured pork prosciutto salumi smell you'll ever smell in your life. A beautiful porky bouquet. It's very intense. Mm. You see they've got these culatello hanging in that room. It's not a very big production. A who's who of pork lovers that's names are associated with these prosciuttos because they've reserved them for certain people. So I'm not making this up. You will see Chef Alan Ducasse. Here's his, you know, 10 pieces of Culatello for the year curing. Wow. They each have a little tag. Yeah. That's so, so it's, cool. It's that beautiful. I saw the one that I saw that impressed me the most was uh, Prince Charles. He had his own leg his curing own. in there. Wow. Yeah. Um, really or not neat. leg, but piece of Culatello. I think that's at one of the great places on the planet to go and try. They have a flight of prosciutto when you eat there. They have a flight of Parmigiano Reggiano too, but I think... You can do the Culatello flight there. That might be your honeymoon spot. It could be. Now that I think about yeah. it, right? You said you want to go to Italy. Andrew's getting married uh, this In year. June. So Tess works at Italy. And for listeners who are not familiar with Italy, Italy is kind of this, the most incredible Italian gourmet specialty food market on the planet. And there's not just one of them. They're around the world. We're very blessed in the United States to have... Two Eataly stores in New York. Tess, you're going to correct me or let me know when I forget something. There's an Eataly in Chicago, in Boston, Toronto, Canada. There is a newer Eataly in Dallas, Texas. There is an Eataly in Las Vegas at the MGM Grand, in Los Angeles at the Westwood Mall. And there is a soon to be Eataly in Northern California in San Jose. How'd I do? Did I get them all? Bravo. You okay. get them all. Great job, John. Eataly to me is if I'm looking for an Italian product, I live an hour away from the nearest Italy. I drive to Italy. If I need to get rice to make risotto, I'm driving to go get the rice at Italy. I will drive to Italy for pastas. I will drive to Italy for tomatoes. It's as close to like going to Italy as you can get. I couldn't agree more. I will drive to Italy for any cured meat and any cheese that I need of Italian origin. Your cured meat trays are really special. They hand slice, I think, every morning these beautiful assortments of different trays, and they're very reasonably priced for what you're getting. You know, the history is that the Italians 
and I think most Europeans in general, they're very prideful of slicing meat to order, having it be as fresh as possible. Uh, there's nothing that is going to be spoiled about a cured meat that maybe was sliced yesterday, but once it's exposed to oxygen, it, do it does lose that rosy red color. And so that was an important factor for Italy, uh, wanting to make sure that as, you know, kind of this authority on the diversity of, of Italy and its, its regions and its food that we were doing our part. And so we have this very special machine that essentially pulls the oxygen out of these trays and allows those slices to not be exposed to oxygen until, as John mentioned, you are, are ready to prepare your board at home. And this came into play, I would say, a lot more in the last few years because no one wanted to come to the counters frequently, uh, potentially, and they wanted to just safely shop. And so we were proud to be able to offer the cut-to-order program that we have and that will always be our foundation, but also this easy access in our in our takeaway sections. And, you know, props to our hardworking teams who do do this every day. I don't know how they don't go to physical therapy for the shoulder pain that they must endure <laughs> through that repetitive slicing motion of and slicing. slicing and slicing. I mean, I can slice for a day, you know, we've been supporting for the holiday season and you feel it, your body feels it. So you really have to not only know the art of breaking these legs down or breaking down a salami, you really have to know how to hold a certain posture. Uh, it's, it's really all an art. And that's what I'm most proud of that we're still doing it the hard way maybe, but we are honoring that and honoring the craft. You guys also have all of these restaurants yeah. within the stores that are really great. We work very closely together. So you can come to Italy and do a full grocery shop. We have a produce department. We have a fish counter, a butcher counter. Um, and and I say this because I'm proud of Italy, but also Italy was by concept and by design really put out there to say, okay, please don't stop going to your butcher and then going down the street to your bakery. Uh, the founders really saw these traditions slipping away, this art of, you know, fare la spesa, doing the shopping where you went around and you hopped around to different uh, pockets of your village to support the people who were best at what they did. And so Italy in North America is is by no means saying don't go to your local salumeria if there is one. But this was an art that was dying. And so we kind of put everything together for you. And you can do a full shop and you also sit down for lunch or come for dinner. You know, uh, Italian regional Disneyland. I was about to say it's like <laughs> yeah. Disneyland. Yeah. So Tess... Tell us a little bit about, you know, yes, we talked about prosciutto a lot. You know, obviously you and your wife do a lot of cooking at home. What is in your pantry? What are the staples that you have to have at home? Tess is married to one of the greatest chefs in New York City right now, who has one of the hottest restaurants in New York City called Chisiamo. Hillary Sterling, I met her when she was working at a restaurant in New York called Avoce. I think that's the earliest I met her maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, who's counting? This is not just any pantry, Andrea, because we right. love to talk about people's pantries at home. This is a The head yeah. of formaggi and salumi, and then you got the, you know, the- One of the best chefs the in New York City. chef of New York City's Chisiamo. I want to know what's in their pantry yeah. is what's right. what's in your pantry? <laughs> Calabrian chilies, for sure. You love it. Mm-hmm. They have to be there. They're, they're a big staple. Generally speaking, definitely a lot of cheese and cheese rinds, not necessarily a collection that you might think of. I love Castelmagno. It's really hard to find an amazing version stateside. I still think that it is an equally amazing cheese to use in a risotto 
uh, or a tapa pasta. It's a little more funky for sure. But I was gifted a whole wheel actually from Fidenzo Gelito for my wedding. And I have definitely made that last. Well, I'm usually an advocate of, okay, high rotation. That cheese, even when it dries out, is is still delicious. And the rind still smells amazing. Definitely some guanciale. Believe it or not, like we're, we're kind of like legume and protein people. And we we buy things on the fly. One thing that we really loved doing during the pandemic, I would say, is I would pick a country uh, and I would really test Hillary. One thing that I think a lot of people don't know about her is she cooks amazing Mexican food. She is just as interested in the regional diversity of Mexico as she is in Italy. I would really tap her for that often. Um, oh, that's good to know. Yeah. We're going to have to have Hillary on the uh, program at some point soon. How do you feel about anchovies? Oh, yes. So, yeah, that's actually something I miss. So we have a lot of tinned fish. So at Italy, uh, we sell these amazing sardines. I, I literally buy four or five tins of them at a time. Uh, and this can either be for sardines on toast or pasta con sarde, uh, you know, just whipping up a fast pasta with, with sardines. There's always some Amaro around either in the freezer or uh, on the shelf, you know, we have an impressive collection of that, I'd say, that's just kind of accumulated through travel and through our love of that. Definitely a little fish oil. Colatora? Yeah, colatora, like yeah. Well, we really appreciate you coming, talking to us about prosciutto, cheese. I want to have you back on to talk about so many other things. This has been so fun. Yeah. And yet also so... I don't know what the word is. I'm so hungry now know, after talking about prosciutto and cheese for this long that, uh, you know, it's it's been a pleasure and has me yearning to eat all of these amazing things. Well, let's do it again. Thank you again for having me. Remember to eat the fat. We've learned a lot. I've learned a lot. Andrea, what do you think? Next time in Italy. Let's do it. I want to see your horse bone. Yeah, I, I will bring it. I'm surprised she doesn't have it with her <laughs> right know. now. This episode is sponsored by the Consorcio of Prosciutto de Parma. Today, we have Jason Stem from the Consorcio of Prosciutto de Parma USA in the studio. Isn't this awesome? This is like my day. So Prosciutto de Parma. What makes the perfect prosciutto? Like, what are the attributes? You know, they, they'll sometimes call it the, uh, the dolce prosciutto, the sweet prosciutto. And a lot of that just has to do with really using the minimal amount of salt in the curing process. And, um, you know, they've improved some techniques over the centuries. They do um, refrigeration now in some of those early days just to make sure that that salt's getting penetrated. And so then you don't have that salt hit on the palate like you do with other prosciutto that maybe you're using more salt or maybe even buried in salt. So you really are able to enjoy the sweetness of the pork. You can get a little bit of nuttiness from uh, part of the pig's diet because they're raised around where a lot of cheese production is going on. So in addition to the cereals and grains, they're getting whey. And you can even smell that if you, you know, take a slice and, and just give it a sniff. You know, usually we're probably smelling meat for off qualities, but this is actually an enjoyable one to, uh, to take in. I always like to smell my prosciutto, and I'm not being silly. Like, if I get a plate of prosciutto, whether I'm in Italy yeah. or the... I always like to kind of get my nose down in there, and, and it smells so good. It does. How many producers are there of prosciutto di Parma in Italy? So there are about 140 producers that are a part of the consortio. Wow. 
and about 25 that are authorized to export to the United States. So only 25 out of 140. Prosciutto di Parma has to be an Italian pig. That's right. From Emilia Romagna. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little bit beyond uh, Emilia Romagna, North Central Italy. It does have to be Italian born and bred and one of uh, three different varieties. So you have the large white, uh, the Duroc, and the Landris. Got it. So the prosciutto di Parma is coming from the hind legs of those pigs. And then the only other real physical ingredient is the sea salt that's added by hand still from the uh, Master Salatori. And um, really one of the most important you know, positions because they're salting the legs based on sight, feel, and of course experience. These hams are not actually cooked. No, that's right. they are cured. Right. With the, so they're cooked with the salt. Got and it. how long, Jason? I mean, they're obviously aged for different months, but what's the minimum? What's the maximum amount of aging? You're going to find the minimum for the U.S. is 400 days. And that was actually set with the USDA. 365 days has traditionally been uh, that time, but the USDA just wanted a little bit more uh, aging. That's also one of the reasons, you know, prosciutto de Parma wasn't available in the U.S. for many years up until the late 80s. And they had to go through a lot of different processes with food regulators here to get that approval. And I was actually, um, for the anniversary a few years back, researching some of the stories around that time. And they'd be comparing the price per pound to a BMW. Either wow. BMWs were really cheap or this ham was <laughs> well, about I mean, $30,000. Well, yeah, because you look at a $40,000 car or something and it's, you know, so many thousands of pounds and they're they're doing, and I'm just like, what's the comparison there? But, you know, going back to the flavor too, I think one of the interesting things is that there are different uh, flavor profiles throughout the leg. Because uh, if you think about the way it's hanging, a lot of times the um, that kind of bottom round part where you first start slicing into is a little bit drier. Uh, maybe even a little nuttier. And then as you get kind of towards that that neck or where the hoof would be attached um, as uh, previously, it's a lot sweeter. And there, there's even uh, people I talk to who will look and see where the leg is at the deli counter sliced into and decide how much they want to get that day. Let's talk about the fat because there's that beautiful fat cap on most prosciutto. Should that be removed? Should that be kept on? Well, you have like the yellow on top, right? Well, that's got to be removed. That has to go. Yeah, that's a little oxidation that you want to to take away. But that that whiteness, yeah. that ribbon of fat that's around the outside, I mean, that's just part of the the experience of enjoying it. And, you know, sometimes um, people, if, you know, the customer comes up and says, you know, I don't want any fat, you know, you they can... They should be kicked out of the store. Well, well, they should, like, go buy shrimp or something, right. you know, seafood. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, but I, probably they still want to make the sale. But what what I really, it pains me is if they just then remove, like, the fat then for the next five customers. It's the um, good fat, isn't it? Yeah. What is the difference, other than geography, between a prosciutto di Parma and a prosciutto San Daniele, which That's is another question. popular... Mm -hmm. prosciutto in the United States. Yeah, so that is coming from the Friuli region, a little bit uh, northeast there in, in Italy, uh, north of Parma. Although, you know, they do um, raise pigs in the same kind of areas of north central Italy. So, you know, there's a lot of um, work they do together. In fact, we're doing a program that's uh, funded by the EU that's all about promoting PDO foods that actually includes both of them. Yeah, because sometimes I'll meet a chef who says, no, 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 no. I love prosciutto San Daniele. I prefer that to prosciutto di Parma. Is there a textural difference? Is there a flavor difference? Is there, because I've never personally known a real discernible 
difference, but I, I just wonder. What I've always been told and what I have found is that San Daniele is a little bit sweeter and a little less salty. I don't taste it, to your point, John, like a huge difference between the two. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think even there's some variance within prosciutto de Parma or prosciutto de San Daniele. You know, certain producers who have worked with the, the breeders and the farms a little bit more closely in terms of certain attributes of the pig. And there's a lot to be said about the slicing of prosciutto. I mean, they say that you should be able to slice it and read the newspaper through it. That's right. If it's too thick, it ruins the prosciutto experience. Especially if you're getting to the end of the leg. And this is one of the things we've been working on in recent years, trying to educate chefs on whole leg utilization and using every last bit. So when you get to that end piece and you can't really get the nice slices anymore, there's a lot of different things you can do to, to dice, chop even grind it, mix it into maybe your part of your meatball mix. I was talking to one chef who said he had like nine or 10 kind of end pieces in the freezer, not knowing what to do with it. Are you slicing prosciutto? Do you have like a Burkle prosciutto slicer yourself? I have a hand-cranked Burkle with a stand that's on wheels that we had purchased for uh, the Consortio a number of years ago. And we've uh, taken that all over custom crate that we can uh, send it all over the country. We actually even did a few events, uh, chef events, where we put a GoPro on top of it uh-huh. because the, the stand has wheels. And we would just wheel it around and capture reactions from people on the GoPro as we'd slice and, and serve them prosciutto. Chef's Warehouse. Andrea, I don't know if you remember, we had a Burkle, mm-hmm. a hand-cranked, as Wild you were describing it, it came it. back into my brain. Where, Where is it? Yeah, I haven't <laughs> seen that thing in years. It was a beast. Yeah. We used to haul this thing around to the fancy food show and to other events. It's not at your house, John? <laughs> no, but I'm going to inquire. We'd like to put that on my counter and yeah. have a leg of prosciutto. A at Burkle the, at is the a. Tell us a little bit about Burkle slicers. Burkle slicers are actually these incredible mechanical machines. They go back in history. I mean, I don't know how many years ago they started making them, but there are collectors of them because there's a lot of great antique ones. There are electric versions, but the prize ones are these hand-cranked ones that are these like marvels of ingenuity. They're a little scary too because it's this large disc blade that could probably chop off all your fingers if you don't know what you're doing. They're made specifically for slicing cured prosciutto hams. Yeah, and you'll usually see uh, the red kind Mm -hmm. of Ferrari color. Exactly. And, you know, they're part of a broader category of flywheel slicers. Frank Crispo, who's a good friend of ours, who had Crispo Restaurant for many years, collects these slicers, Mm -hmm. and he's got probably 30 or 40 Burkle slicers. And these things get up in the dollar. I mean, they they can be... thousands and thousands of dollars. They start at the $10,000 mark. Jason, you're an American man. How do you get into the world of prosciutto? <laughs> like, where did that start? It started with my first job in uh, food and marketing with uh, Agency Lewis & Neal that was um, owned by Anita File. They actually entrusted two Jewish women in the U.S. who they hired for their marketing campaign back in the 90s, and I was lucky enough to join them in 1999, just to date myself. I've been working with them for over 20 years. So just two Jewish gals marketing pork products from Italy <laughs> in the U.S. Yeah, it sounds like a normal course. Yeah. Of I business. mean, you've probably heard that story so many times. Yeah. If someone goes to a market now and buys a pound of beautifully sliced prosciutto, what should they be doing with it? Well, they should start by specifying prosciutto to Parma when they go to the counter. Good point. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think, too, and what one of the things that we're seeing here in the U.S. is different ages. So we talked about how 400 days was the minimum, but oftentimes a store will have also an 18-month, a 24-month. I've seen some longer agings. One idea for your next party might be a tasting flight of ages. Ooh, I like that. 
Yeah. Depending on the age, uh, particularly with the longer ages, I would just probably have it on its own, you know, maybe as part of a board, something like that. If I was to cook, I don't cook often with it. I would generally go with the younger um, ages. Oftentimes, though, just the most simple two-thing pairing. So, you know, wrapped around a fig. Uh, maybe you're adding a little bit of a drizzle of balsamico or something like that. Um, you know, burrata. There's a lot of fruits. Of course, melon is a common accompaniment. Or, you know, simply wrapped around breadsticks um, or the well, the grassini type sure. of breadstick. I learned that one from Nancy Silverton. What she does is she takes the grassini she coats the top half of the breadstick generously with butter. She likes to use truffle butter yeah. too, and then wraps the prosciutto around it. And what that does is it creates adhesion. It's almost like the butter is the glue to the prosciutto. And then you can really display that beautifully in like a vase yeah. on your table. And people come up and they pull the breadstick and the prosciutto together and a little party trick for you. <laughs> I like it with a really great grilled bread with oven roasted tomatoes mm. and mozzarella and prosciutto and like one bite sandwich no like open, open face. face you don't need to wait till the evening to start enjoying prosciutto de parma breakfast sandwiches mm. oh prosciutto, yeah. and, prosciutto eggs. and eggs amazing a prosciutto egg and cheese why not yum I like salami and eggs. This is an ingredient that has a lot of flexibility in how it's used. You know, one thing that uh, Sarah Jenkins did, she actually learned it from uh, somebody in Italy who she couldn't remember at the time, but she created a melon butter where she just slowly churned like a whole cantaloupe diced up with, I think it was a pound of butter, hmm. and then use that to spread on the uh, the bruschetta and then top that with prosciutto de parma. So you get that kind of twist on the classic prosciutto and melon. Yeah. Another thing on the chef's side, probably less so for the home cook, but also ties into that uh, whole leg utilization is uh, Ryan Hardy did a broth where hmm. um, even without the bone, even using some of the skin, you can infuse uh, the broth with that that flavor, and then he cooked the risotto in it. Oh, and so you had that good. subtle prosciutto de parma essence in the risotto, and then topped it off with a little crisped up prosciutto. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to your point about the ends, you know, what do you do with the prosciutto ends? You could stick them um, in like a tomato sauce. Yeah. I do know a lot of people will grind them up and use mm -hmm. them as a filling for tortellini or, or ravioli. That's part of a, actually a traditional Emilia-Romagna filling for tortellini. You know, we talked about how prosciutto de Parma only became available in the United States in the late 1980s. And at that time, really the only places you could find this were markets like Balducci's at the time, Citarella in New York City, very high-end, you know, the Beverly Hills Tea Shop if you're in L.A., yeah. these super high-end places. Um, where can you find prosciutto today? Is it still relegated just to the high-end? No, not at all. Um, and I think uh, there, there's a couple things to look at there. One is uh, the slice to order at the deli counter. And, you know, there's certainly national chains like uh, your Whole Foods. There's large regional chains like HEB that really do a tremendous job with it. Uh, but then with the pre-sliced packaging, that's really helped to get it out into to more stores. So, you know, whether that's a, a Kroger or a Publix or, you know, even Walmart's been experimenting with it a little bit. I love to go to Italy. You're really seeing the, the pre-sliced, of course, last year it took off tremendously um, as people were relying more on retail and less on, on restaurants. But um, those gains have even continued into this year. And so that's that's helped really extend the the availability. Awesome. Yeah, the technology on the pre-sliced prosciutto has changed rapidly just in the last couple of years because it was one of those things where you would buy it before the technology was great. Mm -hmm. 
open the package and it's sliced so thin that it would be very clumpy or very hard to separate. Well, thank you, Jason, so much for being here with us today to talk about my favorite food. <laughs> uh, thank you. It's been great to be with you and uh, just talk a little bit about prosciutto de Parma. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, cheers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Ingredient Insiders, where chefs talk. Like what you hear? Write us a review and follow us on Instagram, at Ingredient Insiders. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.